Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Hey, let's pray together. Father, we love you and we are grateful just to gather as your people in your presence and worship you. Thank you for time to sing to you and pray to you and now time to open your word together. We ask that you would teach us where uh, we are weary. Would you give us strength where we are discouraged? Lord, would you give us strength and encouragement where we are hurting? Would you comfort us where we are blind? Would you help us see? Holy Spirit, come and do your work in our hearts this morning. We pray this for your glory, God, and for our good. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Hey, welcome to FBC. Uh, we're so glad you're with us. My name is Matt, pastor here. And just want to invite you, if you have a Bible, turn with me in your Bible to the book of Acts chapter 7. Again, Acts chapter 7, verse 1 is where we're going to be as we continue this study that we've been in for uh, most of this year. Back in January, we started preaching through the book of Acts little by little. And with the exception of a few Sundays, we've been here uh, pretty much every week. Uh, if you're not familiar with the book, Acts is a historical document written in the first century by a physician named Luke, and it tells the story of the true events, the account of the birth of the church, the early days of the church, and how this message of the gospel of Jesus uh, exploded out into the ancient world, transforming lives and communities. Um, it's always helpful to remember as we start with the book of Acts, or really any other book of scripture, um, especially in the New Testament, what we're reading about is not some once upon a time story, you know, a long time ago in a faraway place. It's just kind of made up and did it ever really happen? Who knows? But it's a cute story and it inspires us kind of. So let's, you know, read along. Um, that's not what we find when we approach the letters of the New Testament at all. What we read about in the book of Acts is this historical account of real events in real places with real people verified in history. Um, one of the ways that we can think about this that's helpful is to realize that the book of Acts is actually uh, a two-part, or excuse me, the second part of a two-part work. The Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts uh, go together as one unified work with the same author, the uh, physician known as Luke. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, and Acts is kind of the, the sequel to it, you could say they go together. Now, when you look back at the Gospel of Luke in chapter 1, when he kind of introduces, hey, here's what this letter, this book is about. Uh, here's how I kind of came upon this writing project, that sort of thing. What you read about is Luke talking about how he talked to eyewitnesses to these events and how he carefully investigated all uh, these accounts to make sure that he put together an orderly account for us to read. In other words, he didn't just casually hear stories about Jesus and believe everything he heard, and he threw it together into a book, and that's what we read when we have the book of Acts. No, he tells us in Luke chapter 1, verse 3, he's actually spent a lot of time digging into this and verifying what he heard about Jesus so that he could put together this orderly account of what actually happened. And so we're dealing with history from the first century, not just fiction or fantasy or story. 
So we'll come back to that. But they say that, hey, every man when he turns 30 either gets really into smoking and barbecuing meats or World War II history. Some of you in here maybe could relate with one of those. I uh, didn't go the way of the, the green egg and the barbecue thing. So for me, I lean more towards the history side. But we'd add on to the World War II history category just a general interest in ancestry, family history. Has anyone here gotten really into like Ancestry.com, right? And you traced your lineage and wanted to know about your family and where you came from. Uh, a few years ago, I got really interested in this, and thankfully some of my family members had already done a lot of the legwork. So my aunt on my dad's side and my grandma on my dad's side worked together on the Ancestry.com family tree, and they traced it out and get this whole packet really put together of family documents, and they mailed it to me when they learned that I was interested. I actually have, I think, a little picture of it on there. You can't read it, but this is kind of what they traced out, and then underneath that page there's this whole stack of documents that I got to, to see our family history. And I got to, to read about our roots and my great-grandparents that were immigrants to the U.S. in the late 1800s from Ireland. And then a few relatives later immigrated to the U.S. in the early 1900s from Germany. I read about how my grandma's maiden name was Finnerty. She's quite Irish. Doris Finity, and our family was originally from Galway, there in Ireland. I saw in this stack of documents my, my great uncle, uncle's uh, World War I draft registration card, and I read about my grandfather's uh, World War II registration card and his involvement there. Read about relatives that were working in the steel industry in East Pennsylvania in the mid-1900s. I could go on and on. It's fun to read about your family history, right? Actually, do this for me. Take a moment, sorry introverts, and turn to someone near you and share a piece of your family history. Where uh, your ancestors came from. Is there a fun family story that your parents would always tell you? Something about your parents or distant relatives? What comes to mind when you think about your family history? Go ahead. Take a minute. Share it now. All right, all right. Let's bring it back together. Hopefully some good stories were shared. You learned some fun facts about one another. I encourage you, share some more of these stories after the service. Keep it going. It'll be great. Um, I'd love to hear some of your stories as well. So it's a pretty natural instinct, right? to want to know our story. It helps us understand who we are, how to navigate the world today, knowing where we've come from. 
The reason I bring this up is because for the next several weeks in Acts chapter 7, we're going to be studying a bit of our shared family history. Not the Scrabeck family history or the Finnerty family history, but the story of the people of God. See, when we read the Bible, we can trace our roots and see the men and women that have gone before us, those who have walked with God. For followers of Jesus, part of that means we're adopted into the family of God. We have God as our Father, and we have a whole host of brothers and sisters in Christ, both now and as we look back through history, our ancestors before us. Their story is now our story. As we get into this, just a bit of context to remember where we are in the book of Acts. Remember, we met Stephen in chapter 6, and he's just crushing it on the ministry scene, right? He's appointed uh, for the distribution of food and resources to the widows, and then we read about his powerful ministry, how no one can stand up to his wisdom. He's filled with the Spirit, and even though he has all these opponents who are trying to counter what he's saying about the gospel and about who Jesus is, they cannot beat him in an argument. He's being used powerfully by God, but his ministry ruffled some feathers, right? And just like Jesus, he had some opponents and religious leaders in his day that came against him because the message of the gospel was a threat to how they operated, how they understood what it meant to be the people of God, how they understood the scriptures, and so... They couldn't beat him, but rather than joining him, they cook up some false charges and stir up trouble and arrest him and seize him and bring him before the Sanhedrin, the highest Jewish court and trial in the land. And they want to get rid of him. False witnesses come forward. He's accused of blasphemous things like speaking against the temple and against the Torah and the law of Moses, these things that they deeply cherished as the Jews. And make no mistake, these were serious charges that could result in his death. So, to all this, after these accusations, we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 7. It says, Then the high priest, again with Stephen before him, then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? Say, Hey, you're in hot water, brother. All these accusations against you, this is pretty serious. What do you have to say for yourself? And what follows Stephen's response, his speech, is the longest recorded speech or sermon that we have in the book of Acts. The longest by far. Actually, if you flip ahead in your Bible, you can see the rest of chapter 7 is basically Stephen's response. It's lengthy. My buddy Scott um, is a pastor in Hawaii. He's actually here today. Scott, can you wave your hands? Welcome. Aloha, brother. Um, one of my best friends in the whole world, Scott, is here visiting. But Scott, I looked at his notes on this because he's a pastor and preacher as well. And he preached through the book of Acts chapter 7 in one sermon. So he did the whole chapter in one morning. But I am no such man. <laughs> Scott, I can't do it. I don't know how he did it. Red Bull and espresso and got really jittery. He just went for it, I guess. But um, I can't do it. So what we're going to do is we're going to break up Stephen's speech. And we're going to take several weeks on it, unpacking it little by little as we go. So this morning we're only going to go through uh, verse 8. So with that, hey, let's look where he starts. To this he replied, here's his speech beginning, Brothers and fathers, in verse 2, listen to me. 
The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. Now, the first thing that maybe jumps off the page and you notice from his response is that it's a little strange, maybe seems a little off topic even. He begins by talking about Abraham from the Old Testament. Now, just think about this again. If you were on trial for your life, serious charges against you, you might want to be a little bit more direct, where you would maybe say something like, look, guys, these clowns that dragged me in here don't know what they're talking about, or this whole trial is a sham. What are you guys even doing? Let me set the record straight. Here's what I've actually said, and here's what that actually means. And address the charges and confront them and set it straight. Now, he'll set the record straight, he'll address the charges, but he sort of does so in an indirect way by bringing up these accounts from the Old Testament. I mean, much of his speech, if you read ahead and look and see, is this, this recap or, or retelling of the story of Israel, retelling the story of the Old Testament. But it'd be a little bit like if you today were put on trial for tax evasion or fraud or a speeding ticket, I don't know, whatever serious trouble you get into, and they bring you before the judge and they say, hey, what do you have to say for yourself, sir or ma'am? And you began with something like, listen... Back in 1776, George Washington crossed the Delaware River to oppose the tyrannical forces of Britain. So, where are you going with this, sir? You're on trial for your life. What do you have to say? Again, look what he says. Verse 2, brothers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Now, let's talk about Abraham a little bit, just to understand what he's trying to say. If you're not familiar with Abraham, he's a big deal in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 12 is this like pivotal, foundational passage of the call of Abraham, where God chooses him and his line to start this new nation, this new people, from which the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, would come. If you know about Abraham, maybe you remember growing up in church and hearing that he had many sons. And you are one of them. And so am I. And so are you. You know the song. Abraham was celebrated by the people of God for really two big reasons. Like if you were a faithful Jew who knew your Old Testament and you heard about Abraham, two things would come to mind. First is his obedience, and the second is his faith. First, his obedience. Back in Genesis chapter 12, again, God uh, calls him to leave his homeland and to go to a place that he would show him. And Abraham has very few details about what all that would entail for his life. But he obeyed. He listened to the voice of God and his call, and he went to where God led him. He showed great obedience. Similarly, he showed great faith. If you're reading here in verses 3 and 4 of Acts chapter 7, it even references this promise that Abraham received. Even though Abraham at the time was old and his wife was old and they had no descendants to speak of, and humanly speaking, it seemed like their biological clocks were uh, behind them in timing, received a promise that they would have many descendants. A great nation would come from them. 
and that through them all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And when Abraham heard this promise, the text tells us he believed God. He practiced great faith in trusting the promise that was given to him. So before we get into the specifics of Stephen's point with Abraham, I want to show and just point to his approach in general, his posture in answering their concerns. You'll see this more as we go, but he clearly, notice, knows the story that he's a part of. He knows their shared family history. He refers to the council as brothers and fathers. He speaks of the God of glory, showing great reverence for God, trying to show them, hey guys, understand the gospel, this message about Jesus and the church and this new thing that God is doing is not some break from the Old Testament in this like irreverent, contrarian, uh, new religion sort of way. He wants them to see that Jesus and the church is really the continuation of and the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament promised and pointed forward to. And so often that's what we see the authors of the New Testament doing is they're not saying, hey, let's just get rid of this Old Testament. They're pointing back and saying, don't you see how the Old Testament scriptures, the very word of God prepared us for this moment, prepared us to understand who Jesus is. So Stephen knows the story. He knows their family history. And he's able then to locate his place in the story and what that means for his life. And so the question for us, just, just to consider this morning, is this, do we know our family history? Do we know the story? Do we know the story of Scripture? And as we live our lives and make our decisions, are we doing so in such a way that is based on convictions that are formed and shaped by the Word of God? Would we be able to say, like Stephen did, hey, here is how I'm living my life, and here's what I believe about this, or here's why I stand against this, or for this, or whatever, and say, and underneath all of that are these biblical convictions. We can point back to Scripture and show why. This all reminds me of a coffee meeting I had with a woman um, sometime in the past few years. And as we were talking, she had a lot to say about Jesus. Things she believed he said or was for or against or what he was like and how he would act and what he would do or wouldn't do today. And, and most of what she said um, didn't really align with the Jesus of Scripture and what Jesus actually said. And so the question that kept coming to my mind was, where do these convictions come from? I mean, what is your basis for saying such and such about Jesus? And as we talked, I kept trying to ask that in different ways. How did you arrive at these conclusions? What do you base these views on? Where does this come from? We never really landed the plane or got a clear answer. And so it just seemed like, hey, there's a lot of opinions and a lot of philosophy and a lot of assumptions, and this kind of feels right or what I think Jesus would be like or whatever, but it's not tied to anything that Jesus actually said. And sometimes that's how we approach life and make decisions. Is we have these assumptions about God, and God's like this, or God wouldn't do this, or God certainly would feel this way about this, and maybe it sounds good, or it's like a catchy quote on Instagram with a nice little modern filter, and it, it looks good, it maybe feels right, but if we ask a few questions just to dig a little bit deeper, we wonder, what is this actually based on? 
as followers of Jesus, we are to be people of the book. Amen? We're to root our lives in the truth of Scripture. Because as we look at Jesus in the Gospels, what do we see? We see how often he quoted the scriptures, pointing back to the word of God. And so we likewise will follow his model. And we can look at any number of topics. I mean, just for example, again, we could talk through uh, what this might mean for how we handle our money or how we handle our time or how we handle and think about sexuality or how we think about uh, taxes, how we think about community, you know, how we think about, you know, what we eat or don't whatever, retirement. You, know, you go down the list and we think about our convictions and how we make our decisions. We could ask in every category, are these rooted in any objective truth of Scripture or is it just my opinion? You see what I'm saying? Again, one such example could just be individualism. One of the, the marks of Western, the Western world, especially in America, is we are uh, rugged individualists. Man, it's, but no one's going to tell me what to do. I want to do my thing. I want to make these decisions for myself. Not really sure I need anybody. And so when it comes to spirituality, we just bring a lot of that along. Say, well, it's really just about me and Jesus. And so I'm not sure I really need the church. I'm not sure I really need to listen to the pastor or to other people in my life, in my community group that might be trying to encourage me or challenge me or whatever. It's just, it's about me and Jesus. So can everyone else just back off? But that doesn't really line up with scripture, right? Because when we read the scripture, we can look back to the people of God in the Old Testament. We can look back to the early church and see that they are what? They're a people. It's, it's this communal journey that we're on together that we actually need one another. And again, through faith in Christ, we've been adopted into the family of God. And now we're exactly that, a family with brothers and sisters that we share this life with. And we follow Jesus together. Right? Following Jesus is a team sport. And so if we try to put our kind of you know, individualist agenda on the scriptures, it, it doesn't work. And so what I want to encourage, because we can't go through every possible example, right? Again, we could pick any, you could spin the wheel, pick any number of categories, and we would talk about, hey, how our assumptions and convictions don't always align with Scripture. So rather than going through all of them, because we don't have time, uh, the basic posture and step I'm advocating and encouraging you towards is to set up this process of evaluating your convictions. Right? So, so when you notice, hey, I feel pretty strongly about this. Like, there's something stirring in my heart, either for something, man, like, I'm really passionate about this, or I'm really uh, offended or bothered by this other thing. I'm worked up about this. This seems to, like, strike a chord with me. I'm asking you to simply ask the question, why? I just evaluate that. And say, I notice something going on in my heart. I'm feeling a certain way. Why do I feel that way? Is there like a biblical justification or reason to feel this way about this or to stand against this or stand for this or whatever? You see what I'm saying? We need to evaluate our convictions based on Scripture. Not just, does this sound right to me? Does this feel good uh, based on my own, you know, whatever op opinion? Do I actually have a, a biblical reason to live this way? But in order to evaluate our convictions based on the Word of God, we have to know the Word of God. Amen. <laughs> we, we have to know the story. We have to, to know what God has said in His Word and be familiar with it. Recently, um, Christian leaders have rightly been concerned about uh, the issue of, of biblical literacy 
or biblical illiteracy, as we in our modern day can no longer assume that collectively we understand the Bible, know what the Bible says, understand the teachings of Scripture. Maybe there was a time uh, in our history where that was the case, but today is certainly not that day. And so in order to set up a biblical filter for how we live life, we have to know Scripture. But we don't anymore. Al Mohler, pastor, theologian, commentator, uh, summarized some evidence that points to our biblical illiteracy. He said, fewer than half of all adults could, could name the four Gospels in the Bible. He said, many Christians couldn't identify more than two or three of the disciples. Um, majority of people couldn't tell you many of the Ten Commandments, if any. Um, a Barna poll indicated that at least 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. <laughs> That's a good one. I like that. Um, and then a considerable number of respondents to one poll indicated that the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. Again, if you don't know Sermon on the Mount, uh, one of Jesus' most famous teachings from the book of Matthew, but we hear that, hey, I think Billy Graham preached that one. Um, so again, just, just to highlight, hey, I, we don't, we're not super familiar with the story anymore. And I don't point this out to shame you, or if you were like, hey, some of those, I'm not sure about those. Um, I'm glad you're here. The point isn't to make you feel bad. The point is to encourage you and invite you to, to read your Bible, to become familiar with the scriptures, to, to know what God has said so that you can build your life upon it. And I just want to encourage you, hey, by being here this morning, you're already taking a big step uh, in this direction, right? By coming to church and you're, you're hearing the word of God taught and we're reading through the book of Acts together. So simply by being here this morning, that is a step of obedience that should be uh, really celebrated. Say, hey, I want to come and hear the word of God taught and understand it. And even though Matt makes some bad jokes every once in a while, they're not that funny or he kind of annoys me in certain ways. I want to hear the word of God and I want to learn to live in light of its truth. And hopefully already, as we've gone through the book of Acts, maybe, again, that's kind of bolstered your understanding of the scriptures. And you can point back to some of these events in the book of Acts. You can say, wow, look at how Peter and John, beforehand in the early chapters of Acts, stood up uh, on trial for their lives, and they're threatened, and they were even beaten. But they said, we have to continue preaching the gospel. And what an encouragement then to face whatever trials and, and hardships we might endure in a way with great grace and passion cent centering on the gospel. We can say, look at the, the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 and how central uh, the indwelling and empowering spirit of God is for our life as a church. We're called to be the witnesses of Jesus, Jesus' witnesses in the world. And we can't do that on our own. And so God gave us his very spirit to empower us and equip us and, and send us out to do his work. And on and on. And so again, do we know the story? It's an invitation to learn it more. But back to Stephen. Let's look what he's doing. He says, hey guys, remember Abraham. God called him. He went, but, look at verse 5. We're going to hone in on his point. He gave him no inheritance here. Not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised that he and his descendants after him would possess the land. Even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. And they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I'll punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterward, they will come out of that country and worship the place. 
Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. And later Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. And you see this theme of family history, right? He's retelling the story of Israel. Abraham's story, the call on his life to go, and God's promise to use him in a special way, and how he fathered Isaac and Jacob. And Jacob's sons became the 12 tribes of Israel who were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, verse 6 tells us. And so faithful Jews would, would hear this family history and they would look back to Abraham as the father of their nation. I mean, this is the guy that God chose to start it all. Remember, stay with me here. If you're asleep, wake up, lean in for just a sec. Um, remember the context. Stephen's on trial and he has these accusations brought against him that he stands opposed to the law of Moses. The Torah, the very word of God. This guy's a blasphemer. This guy stands opposed to the, the Torah. This guy doesn't care about the temple. In preaching Jesus, it's a threat to the temple and uh, this place, this very land that we live in. That's the accusation. And so Stephen's point, notice with Abraham. Here it is. He says, you guys are so tied up on the land and the temple and the Torah, but I, I want you to look at Abraham, he's saying, and realize a few things. First, he didn't even inherit the land. No, it's verse 5, that's what he says. He gave him, God gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on, but God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land. So, you're so tied up on the land, but Abraham didn't even inherit the land. It was promised to later descendants. And then, by the way, they had to go through the whole exodus and Egypt and slavery, and then they ended up in the land. And, notice this, even more foundationally, where was Abraham when he received his call from God? Look at verse 2. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Here's the point. Abraham's genuine encounter with the God of glory, this life-altering encounter, this uh, world-changing encounter with the living God took place where? Outside of the land. It, it wasn't in the land. It, it wasn't at the temple that Abraham heard the voice of God and responded. So his point, God is bigger, guys, than the land. The work of God has never been bound by one particular location like the temple. Actually, look at Abraham. God was working before the temple was even around. Before the temple existed, before the people were in the land, God was at work. Look at Abraham. It's never been just tied to this one location. So don't be so surprised, he's saying, when you hear me preach the gospel of Jesus and you hear about this Jesus of Nazareth and he doesn't fit neatly into your box. Now, Stephen's going to throw a few more things at the council over the course of this speech. Okay, we've got a long way to go, a few weeks ahead. But here his big aim seems to be where he starts by saying, you guys need to expand your view of what God could be up to. You need to expand your view of what God could be up to. 
Now to clarify, maybe we're wondering here this morning, how do we understand that truth that, man, God is bigger than we often understand? He's up to more than we realize. He doesn't fit neatly into this box, but does that just lead to some kind of free-for-all religion? Like, whatever your heart tells you about God must be true. You've seen maybe the bumper sticker or kind of the Instagram post that's, my God is too big for any one religion. Is that where this leads? So yeah, God is bigger and beyond, so let's not try to define God too closely. How could we say that only one religion has it right? That sort of thing. God's whatever you want him to be. I don't think that's where this leads us or where we should land, and here's why. Again, I want to look at how Stephen responds. Look again at his approach in general. He's not saying, hey guys, your, your way of thinking is old, crusty. Just toss the Old Testament, the Word of God. That doesn't really tell us who God is. It's about what's in your heart. It's about what you believe now. It's about what feels right to you. No, that's not, what he, that's not how he argues for his position. He says, guys, look at the Old Testament. Guys, think about Abraham. Guys, look at the Scriptures. Look at how God has revealed himself to us. He's, he's shown us this before. This actually makes sense in light of who God has revealed himself to be. And he wants them to see that actually following Jesus as Messiah makes sense according to the scriptures. God has been preparing us for this. This is what God has said in his word, you see? So the, the scriptures are still the foundation for what they point back to. Because in the scriptures, we find God revealing who he is. Look at what God has said about himself. Guys, read the scriptures and see what God has told us. And so it's not this kind of arbitrary, hey, whatever I think is right, or I'm going to create this little box to put God into. It's actually, let's look at how God has defined himself. Let's look at, if you can put it this way, the box that God has put himself in. He's told us who he is. So let's look again at the scriptures and let the scriptures and God's revelation define who he is. Because that's what he's said. Do you see the difference? It's not just personal opinion or preference. It's let's look at the scriptures. That's why it's important to be in church. That's why it's important to be in community. Because we don't read the scriptures in isolation. They They have a word for the theologian who's alone. You know what it is? It's a heretic. <laughs> the theologian alone is a heretic because we kind of get off in our little rabbit holes and trails. We, we need one another and read the scriptures in community. And look even through church history and say, hey, how has the church understood this topic or this issue or whatever before us? And all of that should weigh into as we're interpreting the scriptures, you see? So he's saying, guys, here though, you got to understand that God's up to more than you would realize in the Old Testament. Sociologists and psychologists, especially in the area of religion, will talk about what's known as a, a plausibility structure. Have you heard of a plausibility structure? Um, this is basically a way of describing a filter we have for what we are willing to entertain as plausible. 
So when we hear an idea, it first runs through our plausibility structure and tells us, is this even worth entertaining? Like, is this even worth mental energy to think about? Some things we just categorically right away rule out. Um, like, again, flat earthers. I don't know if we have any flat earthers here, but that's one thing that most of us are like, I don't have to agonize and lose sleep over whether the earth is flat or not. Like, there's enough information that that just, you know, the flat earth idea doesn't make it through my plausibility structure. Sorry if I offended anybody. I don't know if you're there. But you get what I'm saying. Or we can say, uh, I read an article about this that talked about, hey, um, if you find cookies in your cupboard, there are a few plausible explanations for how they got there. Right? Like maybe your spouse bought them and brought them over. Or a friend delivered them. Or maybe your kids brought them home from school or whatever. Uh, there's a few plausible explanations. But there are certain ideas that you wouldn't entertain at all. You wouldn't think, hey, maybe some Keebler elves in the tree outside, you know, snuck into my house and baked these cookies and left them there for me. Right? Is that an idea any of you would entertain? Thank you, Jordan. Okay, most of us, <laughs> most of us would not. Why? It doesn't fit through our plausibility structure. We're like, no, that's not, I'm not going to entertain that idea. It doesn't fit. I'm not even going to consider it. And so Stephen's saying, hey, guys, maybe you need to reevaluate your plausibility structure. You're just like ruling this out right away. Maybe you need to reconsider that, that Jesus of Nazareth really is who he says he is. You need to rethink your filter. Some parts of this passage aren't a one-to-one -one parallel to our time today. But I think this question is, are you willing to consider that Jesus of Nazareth is who he says he is? Are you willing to consider that Jesus of Nazareth is who he says he is? Or... Do you write off his claims without serious investigation? Because I know something like this could never happen. Or I know God would never say this. Or I know if Jesus is real, he wouldn't do this. Or everyone knows the Bible can't be trusted. Really? How do you know that? Again, I think sometimes these uh, plausibility structures are there, but if we just ask a question or two, we realize that some of those opinions and filters are based on all kinds of faulty assumptions that don't actually line up with history or science or what we know about the world, and we just have to dig a little bit to, uh, to see. So that's the question, right? Are, are you, are we open-minded enough, open-minded enough to consider that Jesus is who he says he is? Or are we closed off to there being a God? No, we know there's not a God. Of course not. I wouldn't even consider that. Are we closed off to the idea that, that we are sinners in need of a Savior? Or is that like a non-starter for you? And you just hear talk of sin, and you're like, that sounds outdated. That sounds archaic. That sounds oppressive. That doesn't fit. Or it's actually, no, that I'm going to consider that that actually could be true. And that I actually need a Savior. Are you closed off to the idea that, that there is judgment for sin? God would never judge. God would never condemn. God surely would not cast anyone away because of their sin. And yet the scriptures tell us, actually, that is a very real possibility. Are we closed off to the idea that the way is narrow? No one comes to the Father but through Jesus. 
There's no other way to be saved. No other name under heaven given by which we must be saved than that of Jesus Christ. Do we hear that and say, boom, right away, oppressive, narrow, out of date with modern sensibilities? I'm not even going to consider that. Sadly, some of us do that. That's you, I'd urge you to reconsider. Are you open-minded enough to consider that Jesus of Nazareth is who he says he is? Because in the scriptures we read about this Jesus who was in the beginning with God the Father, uncreated, always existing alongside the Father and the Spirit, the triune God of history, is the Word made flesh who came and moved into the neighborhood. He walked among us. He came as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. He came in Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we consider the words of Titus chapter 3, at one time we too were foolish disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Friends, I ask you this morning two things. One, do you know the story that you're a part of? Is your life built upon the truth of Scripture? And are you willing to consider the gospel and that Jesus is who he says he is? Even if your assumptions and your plausibility structure at first does not make room for it. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. We thank you for the truth of this passage and the gospel that you saved us. Your kindness and love appeared and you saved us not because of righteous things we had done but because of your mercy. You washed us and renewed us by the Holy Spirit. We are now your people, part of your family through the work of Christ. Thank you that we can call you Father. Would you go before us by your Spirit and help us walk in your ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.